hero's hero. All my heroes that I respect now for our life, Lloyd-Jones is their hero, right? I remember before starting Embrace, how long ago was this? 2004, was it? How long ago was this? Was it eight years? Man, I, I could go on a sabbatical. Eight years. Kyo was just a little boy just getting over purity when I first came. And like he's married with Jamie, you know what I mean? So I remember when Kyo was still in puberty, right? I was, I was reading the, the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones right before I came here, right? And what struck me about his biography was um, a couple of things. Number one, Martin Lloyd-Jones grew up in the church. And all throughout his life, he thought he was a Christian. He was confirmed in the Church of England. He considered himself a morally right, he considered himself moral, right? But when he started practicing medicine in London and attending a church, as he attended that church, which was very Bible-based, he realized he wasn't a Christian at all. That's what he realized. He thought all his life he thought he was a Christian, but he realized he wasn't a Christian at all. And this happened to his wife. Him and his wife got married, right? And then they were married when he was a doctor, and then, you know, he decided to go to the ministry, and, she, and, they support, and she supported him. Can you believe your husband, the doctor, says, I want to be a full-time pastor. Can you believe it? And his wife said, okay, let's go, let's do it. God bless her, yeah? So she, you know, she was a doctor too. She gave up her medical practice and went with him. And as she was listening to his sermons, after they were married, after she gave up her medical practice, after she became a pastor's wife, she thought she was a Christian all her life, right? And after she gave up everything and followed Martin Lloyd-Jones to his ministry, when she started to hear her husband preach, she realized she was never a Christian. All her life, she thought she was. She was confirmed. She thought she was moral. Heck, she even gave up her medical career to follow Martin Lloyd-Jones to the, to, the, to the church, right? But she realized, as she was sitting under her husband's preaching, she was never a Christian. This happens in Martin Lloyd-Jones' ministry. People who thought they were Christians start to realize, as he's going through the Bible verse by verse, that they weren't really Christians at all. People, I think, have a misunderstanding of Christianity because they don't really know what God is really about. I see all these pastors, even now, they're about certain things. They're about this, they're about that. But I hear many sermons out there and I don't hear people conveying the truth about what, who God is according to Scripture. And people are satisfied with their ignorant understanding of God all their lives. They claim to be Christian because, I don't know, because of their, you know, familiarity, culture familiarity. They think of themselves as Christians because they think they're moral, like Louis Jones thought. 
but they don't have a real understanding of what God is about biblically. That's why people, I'm afraid, there are a lot of people who claim to be Christian, and yet they're not. And I say this to you, not to condemn you, because I don't do that, right? I say this to you to give you a description of what God is about according to Scripture. What God is about according to Scripture is restoring fallen humanity to their glorious state. Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 talks about creation. God took this universe that is that is just chaotic. There's no form. It's just chaos. He takes a chaotic form of existence and he, and he, and he, and he creates something great. Out of chaos, out of nothing, he creates everything. He gives physical laws, physical, you know, he gives... He creative laws. He, he provides all the structure to the universe. For once a chaotic, chaotic state, the universe has order, right? Has beauty in it. Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 2 talks about the creation of a human being. When God created the human being, he made the human being in his image. He made us like him in certain regards. Obviously, there's only one God, and there are certain attributes that he has that we don't have, but he made, he, he molded us into his image. And we are the way we are because he is the way he is. And one of the ways in which we are like him is that we have a mind, we can think, we can create, and we can feel. Because we're made in the image of God, we have the capacity for reason. We have the capacity for creation. We have the capacity to feel. But when men rebelled against God, when humanity rebelled against God in Genesis chapter 3, our created order, the image that we were made in God's image, that image became shattered. And everything that about us that was like him become, became discombobulated. Our reasoning became discombobulated. Our feelings became discombobulated. Our, created thi- our creative nature became discombobulated. I'm being the- the- theological here. Bear with me. Once men and women sinned, the beautiful image that God has made us, the, our intellectual, reasoning, creative, and even our emotional beings, be, state, they all became shattered. And it becomes this incomplete mess. For example, God has given us the capacity to reason. But Paul says, after the fall, Men uses their reason for futility. We use our reason for foolish things. Ecclesiastes says, after the fall, men became insane. 
We have the capacity for reason, but after the fall, we became insane. And that is like that with our emotions. Emotions, feelings, are God-given gifts. They are. Right? We have the ability to process the world, not only through our minds, but also our feelings. And we can feel, because we're designed in the image of God, who feels. God has emotions. God is not Spock. Do you know Spock in, in, in Star Trek? The Shans know. Spock is this logical being in the Star Trek creation. That is illogical, Captain, right? No? God is not Spock. He's not emotionless. Right? He's not. God is a God full of passion and emotion. Look at the Bible's depiction of God. Look, for example, God laughs. Do you know God laughs? Psalm 37, verse 12 to 13. The wicked plus against the righteousness and, and gnashes at him with his teeth, the Lord laughs at the wicked. He's saying the wicked plans things to destroy the righteous. And when God looks at the plans of the wicked, he laughs at them. God mourns. The shortest verse of the Bible is in John, 16, John 11, verse 35. The shortest verse of the Bible is this. Jesus wept. Jesus Christ the agent of creation, the one who holds all things together, weeps. God hates. Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19. He says there are six things that, the, that God hates. One is haughty eyes. Haughty eyes thinking arrogant, people with arrogance who have disdain for other people. Right? God hates people with haughty eyes. Lying tongue, heads that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utter lies. God hates them, they say. God loves. God who so loved the world, who he gave his only begotten son. These are just small examples of the many, many ways in which, ways in which it, the Bible expresses the emotions of God. You and I are emotional because we're created in the image of God. I'll give you an example. The, the, the proposition, right? Harming children, abusing children is evil. That proposition, all of us agree that that proposition is true. But you agree with me that's true, not because of reason, but because of emotions. Look, when you say I do in the wedding chapel before God, when you promise to be devoted wholly onto this person, is that an act of reason? Right? 
I don't want to debase marriage. Marriage is great. I love being married. I love my wife. Yay, let the record show. But you're committing your entire life for that one person. Is that an act of reason? Won't evolutionary biologists say that is irrational? Shouldn't we as men have multiple partners for the, for the propitiation of our species? That's more rational, right? For us not to be monogamous, but for us to be love, cast a wide net and love more range of people for the prosperity's sake, right? That's rational. But in marriage, you say, I want to be committed to this person for the rest of my life. Why did I get so bitter when I said rest? Right? But then, you know, for the rest of your life, right? You want to be committed to one person. That is not a rational decision. It's an emotional one. And it doesn't make it wrong. It makes it beautiful, right? There are things that are about us. I think, to be honest with you, we process the world more through our emotions than our brains. And it's not, we do that because we're made in the image of God who feels. Do you understand? The feeling is not a bad thing. Feeling is a beautiful thing. I love emotions, right? In fact, I want to feel more, right? It's a natural God-given thing you're feeling. The problem with feelings is that after the fall, our feelings become discombobulated. Our feelings have fallen. We feel wrong things all the time. How many of you are burdened by your feelings? How many of you are burdened by the feeling that you are nobody? How many are you burdened by a feeling that you're not loved? How many are you burdened by a feeling that you're not good enough? How many are burdened by the feeling that you're worthless? Men and women live under the weight of fallen feeling. Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, the fruit of the person who is apart from God is this, jealousy, fits of rage, hatred, envy, wrath. All of these are feeling verbs, right? If you're apart from God, what is your feeling like? Your feeling is feeling of envy, feeling of hatred, you get angry really easily, right? Um, You get jealous, you're lustful over someone that you shouldn't be lustful over. Your feelings are fallen. That's what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 5. And you see this all the time. Heck, you're living fallen feelings all the time, aren't you? Nothing can cure you of your fallen feelings. Let's say you won the billion dollar in the scratch-off, right? We're having a conversation. Pastor Virginia says about billion dollar lottery. Let's say you won a billion dollars in the lottery. 
will that cure your feelings of loneliness and unworthiness? Of course it doesn't. I was reading an interview by, with Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt says, I'm all, I, feel always, I'm feel, I always feel alone. What are you talking about, Brad Pitt? You're Brad Pitt, for crying out loud. People love you, right? Not, not besides Angelina. But people love you. Besides Angelina. You're gorgeous. You're rich. And he says, I feel lonely. Your feelings are fallen. You get mad at things that shouldn't, you shouldn't get mad at. You don't get mad at things that you should get mad at. It's weird. All of marital problems. Your marital problem is not an issue of rationality. Guys may say, not our guys, guys generally say, my wife is crazy. They say, my, my wife is irrational. Not embrace wives. Embrace wives are the most rational people that I've ever met, right? They say, women are irrational, crazy. It's, because my wife is cray-cray, our marriage is a mess. No, that's not what it is. It's that you, you're feeling bitterness against your wife, and your wife is feeling bitterness against you. Your, your marital strife is not about rationality. It's about emotion gone haywire. Like I said, look, a couple of years ago, like I said, my, I came from work and my wife ate half the food that I asked her to get me. That's still enough food for me, right? I, I wouldn't go starving after eating half the food, right? But emotionally, I acted out. It's not based on reason at all. It's just raw, unfettered emotion. Our feelings are fallen. You need to understand, your feelings are fallen. The world says, trust your feelings, Disney Channel says. That's why I'll never get Disney Plus. Trust your feelings, the world says. Trust the force, Luke, which is basically saying trust your feelings. Trust your instincts. Trust your sense. Trust your gut. Trust yourself. Really? The Bible says don't trust yourself, man. Your feelings are fallen. You're feeling against another human being. Your feelings against God. Your feelings against for yourself. They're not true. They're fallen. And what God does is he, what Christianity is, is that he restores your fallen nature. When Jesus says, I give you eternal life, the life here means it's not only life that you live forever, but the quality of life. When Jesus said, I give you eternal life, he means he's restoring you the true version of life that God has created you to be, which includes proper emotion. Does that make sense? Eternal life is not just living in heaven for all eternity. Eternal life is a restoration of true life that God has designed you to have, which includes healthy, emotional life. And you see the restoration of healthy emotions in Joseph today. Let's go back. Where, we, where do we find Joseph in the beginning of chapter 45? Chapter 44, 
In chapter 43, Joseph has a huge banquet with his brothers, right? And he gives his brothers after the meal bags of food, bags of weed, and bags of money, and he sends them off their way, but he hides his silver tray, silver basin in Benjamin's sack, and then the whole thing transpires, and the brothers and Benjamin are brought back forth to Joseph, and Joseph accuses Benjamin of stealing his silver tray. And what this whole event caused was that this whole event caused their brothers to understand that what they are doing, that God is allowing all this stress upon them, all this false accusation stress upon them. God is allowing the stress upon them because of what they did to their brother Joseph 22 years ago. And in verse 16, I think, in chapter 44, Judah, the oldest brother, says, the Lord, is, the Lord has done this to us to uncover our sins. So Joseph, so Judah confesses his sins to Joseph. And also Judah says, please don't take our brother Benjamin as a slave because that will kill our father. Rather than Benjamin, please use me as a slave. Judah and his brothers begin to show signs of true repentance. And when Joseph heard this, in verse 1, it says, Joseph could not control himself any longer. He was filled up with emotion. When he heard his brothers confess, and when he heard Judah wanting to protect his, their father and their little brother Benjamin, he was welled up with emotion. And he couldn't contain anymore. He didn't want his Egyptian servant to see him cry. Because real men don't cry, right? Right? So he said, guys, leave. They have the servants left. And then he cried before his brother. He wept before his brother. Not only that... When he revealed himself to his brothers and says, brothers, I am Joseph. The brothers were dismayed. They say, what's going on? Um, it's fascinating what, what, what he says when he reveals himself to his brothers. I am Joseph. Verse 4, I am Joseph. I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. That's cold. But then he says, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourself. Isn't that crazy? To the brothers who beat him up to a bloody pulp when he was 17, to the brothers who threw him in an empty well and wished he would break his neck or whatever in the well and then sold him to slavery, Joseph is saying, don't be stressed. Don't be angry with yourself for trying to kill me and selling me into slavery. What? Joseph is so kind. Joseph is genuinely touched by their repentance. And Joseph is incredibly gentle with their brothers to the point where he says, don't blame yourself for what you did to me. What? He says, don't blame yourself for what you, what you did to me. 
goodness and kindness is emanating. Goodness and kind emotions are emanating from Joseph. How in the world is that possible? Let me ask you. Let's say there's someone who tried to kill you, who beat you up to an inch of your life and who threw you to an empty well and then who sold you as a slave. And 22 years later, they come to you and says, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. Would you well up in emotions and try to forgive that person? I don't think so. Was Joseph overwhelmed with feeling and kindness because their brother said, I'm sorry? You know this to be true. When, you're, when your spouse says, I'm sorry, when they did something bad, do you go, okay, now because you apologize, I forgive you. Is that how your wedding fight, marriage fights go? I'm painting a very bad picture of marriage right now. No, right? Maybe it does. But sometimes words are not enough to move your heart to forgiveness, yeah? I don't think Joseph was acting kind to his brothers because he was persuaded, he was moved by their repentance. There was something else that changed his emotion. The most natural human emotion for Joseph to have against his brothers then and there is anger, is vengeance, is wrath, right? You killed my, right? You try to kill me, man. How can I forgive you? I begged my life when you were doing this to me. I begged you to stop. And you didn't stop. And I went to jail because of you. I was a slave because of you. I hate you. That's the natural response. That's the emotion that all of us agree, right? But Joseph says, no, don't blame yourself. What? Where does such kindness come from? It comes from Joseph's understanding about the providence of God. What did Joseph say in verse 5? Verse 6. Verse 5, he says, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. Don't blame yourself, Joseph says. Because you sold me, don't blame yourself because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 6. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. How was Joseph able to be so emotionally healthy towards his brothers? He he placed himself within the larger frame of God's work. Joseph didn't think of himself only through his lens. He contextualized where he was in the, lar- in the context of God's, God's large purposes. Joseph is saying, it, even though you try to kill me, it's not you who really sent me here. It's God who sent me here. And God sent me here because there was going to be a famine for seven years. And, his, and people will suffer. People will die. 
because of the severe famine. God, God sent me here so that I could prepare a plan so that the people will not die, especially the people of Israel. Joseph is saying, God has used your evil behavior towards me to accomplish his great purpose, which is to save lives. Look, Joseph in verse 7 says, God has set me before you to preserve for you a remnant. What does the word remnant mean? The remnant here means God's people. This is how God's saving plan works. He promised Abraham that through his lineage, the Savior of the world will be born. And that Savior of the world is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came into the world through the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, right? In order for the Savior of the world to be born, Israel has to be preserved. In order for God to save you and me, Israel has to be preserved because that's God's plan of salvation. In order for Israel to be preserved, someone would need to be placed in that particular moment of time so that Israel will not starve to death during the famine. In order to preserve Israel and God's people, including you, God placed Joseph in Egypt at that particular moment of time. God is interested in making for himself a new humanity, a new humanity that belongs to God and worships God and are changed by God. God is interested in building a new humanity in Jesus Christ. And that humanity is being is born through Egypt, I'm sorry, born through Israel. And God needed to preserve Israel to save the world, to save you. And Joseph is saying, because that's God's plan, he placed me in Egypt. He sent me to Egypt. Joseph is not thinking of how his brothers wronged me. That's not the focus. His focus is God is using me to save his people. God is sovereign. And in his providence, he directs all things, controls all things. He wills all things to happen according to his plan. That's the sovereignty of God. God directs all things, controls all things, and, and moves all things according to, in order to accomplish his purpose. One of the ways in which he directs all things is he's, he uses secondary causes, such as the will of man and even the sin of man, to accomplish his will. God uses the sin of human beings to accomplish his will. Look, this is a controversial thing, but I'm going to say it. Not a mean thing. There's a thing called chaos theory that says even random events happens within a predictable model, basically. And basically, I'm going to chaos theory. 
all the atrocities of the 20th century, including Nazis and Stalin and everything, all those things needed to happen for you to exist. According to chaos theory, if, Stalin, if, if Hitler didn't exist, I wouldn't have been born. Because the fate of Korea would be different, right? Everything in humanity, including the atrocities of human beings, God uses to accomplish his purpose. It doesn't mean what his brothers did was, any, like, was justified. The brothers can't say, oh, well, you know, God used our murderous intent to do his will, so we're good, right? It doesn't mean that. What his brothers did was absolutely evil, but God still uses absolutely evil things to accomplish his purposes. And because Joseph saw himself in the light of God's greater providence and purpose, he could have a healthy motion towards his brother. How do you have healthy emotions? You need to see yourself. You need to frame yourself within the context of the identity of God. If God is removed from your consciousness, if all you see is you, you cannot forgive people that wrong you. If all you have is you, you can't forgive people who betrayed you. You can't forgive people who ignore you. You can't forgive people who dismissed you. You can't even forgive people who cut you off in traffic because of your bad driving. You can't forgive a wife who ate half your order. Like, I'm really like, into this, right? If it's just you... How can you forgive anyone? If it's just you, how can you have a proper understanding of you? How can you feel good about you if it's only you? See yourself, frame yourself within the context of God's divine plan. Truly immerse your consciousness in the realm of God's plan. Then you will have healthy emotions. Look, there's this woman I was reading an interview about. Her name is Annie Liu, I think. She's a costume designer in Hollywood, right? She's a costume designer in Hollywood, and she became a Christian like five years before. Five years previous to her becoming a Christian, she was in a relationship with a dude, and she got pregnant. But the dude, I mean, the dude wasn't abusive or anything, but the dude wasn't nice. So, so the guy left. She became pregnant with the guy. The guy left. She had an abortion. She didn't know God before then. And she says, after I got the abortion, I knew something wasn't right about me. There's something that I was feeling that I was suppressing. Because the world is telling me what I did wasn't bad. The world was telling me it was my right to get the abortion. The world was telling me what I, what I removed wasn't a child, wasn't a life. It was just a glove of cells, right? That's what the world was telling me. 
but I couldn't get over the fact that what, there was something that I did that was not right. But I couldn't put my finger on it because the world was, because the world was telling me what, what, what I did was legitimate and viable and good. She said then she became a Christian. And then she realized what she's done. She killed her child, she says. And for the first time, she says, she mourned over her child and what she did. And she mourned over her child and she knew God forgave her. And she says, after that, I felt so free. Before being a Christian, she felt this this pressure on her, this feeling that she's not right. She couldn't, and she didn't repent. But after being a Christian, she saw what she's done. She knew God forgave her. And she was free. That event led her to a restored relationship with her stepfather. She said all her life, her and her stepdad did not get along. But after finding Christ, her hatred and resentment toward her stepfather, that went away. That's exactly what happens to us when we frame our lives in the light of God's revealed, in in the light of God you begin to feel things properly. Look, last week, I had two things happen to me. One thing was, there was this, I I think I told you, a couple of weeks ago, there was this really important project that I was working on. Right? CEO and, and, and the general counsel and the chief human resource officer of a Fortune 200 company was on my neck about this project. I was talking to my partner, and my partner says, oh, deal with it. Okay, thank you for the trust, guy, right? So I was, like, working with them at 10 o'clock. They were calling me on my cell phone. I was, like, like writing affidavits and forms and all that stuff, right? And it was a high-pressured, high-stake work that I was doing. And I didn't know whether it was going to work. During my vacation, I got noticed that it worked. And my partner sent me an email saying, kudos to you, he says. The chips were down, but you came through. Proud of you, champ. He didn't say proud of you, champ, but you could see, you could feel that he was proud of me. I go, dad, right? So he goes, what was my response when I heard kudos? Did I go, that's right. I'm the best lawyer there is. I'm underpaid. I deserve more recognition. I want to be a partner. Is that what, I, what my mentality was? No. Praise God. Because he helped me. It's all him. It really is all him. A couple of days ago, a very bad thing happened to my family. It's a thing that breaks my heart and my mom's heart into a million pieces. 
Temptation is to get really bitter about it. Really angry about it, questioning whether God loves me about it or not. But I wasn't getting angry. I wasn't angry. Because I was praying for this sermon, I framed that event in the light of God's greater purpose. And it didn't ruin my heart. The highest of the high, I didn't get arrogant. The lowest of the low, I didn't get despondent. My feelings were in control. Because I framed those events in the light of God's purposes. It's true. I am absolutely addicted to prayer. And I don't say that because I want to make myself a more religious person. No. I'm addicted to prayer because in prayer, that's what I do. I give my events, my concerns to God. And I can feel them correcting my feelings about these things. I wake up with incorrect feelings all the time. I do, and, and you do too. But when I frame my mind in the light of God's will, because I have to, because I'm a preacher, and when I pray to him, when I walk with him, I feel him restoring my feelings. That's why when, when I have an argument with my wife and when I go out and pray, my wife says, oh, you're going to come back and you're going to say you're sorry. I go, yeah. Because she knows the drill. She knows the drill. When you go to God in bitterness, you're kind of ashamed at the end of acting this way. Because when God's truth is revealed to you, you begin to have right feeling. Isn't it tiring to walk around your life with incomplete fallen feelings, full of misery and disdain and dismay and depression? Isn't it tiring being you? Filled with worries and concerns. God says, come. Study my word. Walk with me. I literally walk with God. There's a church behind my house. I just walked there. Yesterday, I walked like three miles around the church. Just like three miles around the church. Right? I told my wife that. My wife said, well, that's a Catholic church. I go, it doesn't matter, woman. Right? When you do it, oh, God restores you. He restores your mind. He restores your feelings. And then what does Joseph do? This is continuation of t- next week. Next week's sermon is going to be really good. So t- I'm giving you a preview. It's going to be a really good next week's sermon. Right, Lord willing. Then Joseph says, brothers, tell my father of who I am, where I am, what I'm doing. And I want you to bring your father, bring our father, and I want, to bring your cat- I want you to bring your kids and all your cat and all your flock, and I want you to live with me. To the land in the land of Goshen. Goshen is, a, is an area in the northeast region of Egypt that is by the Nile River. It is really good for grazing cattle. Jacob has a lot of cattle. He says, I will 
take, I will build you a house in Goshen so that you guys can live with me comfortably during the next five years when the famine's still happening. Joseph not only has proper, good, compassionate emotion towards his brothers, but he gives his brothers more than they deserve. Right? These guys try to take away his life, but Joseph gives them life in the midst of a famine. God gives us more than we deserve. God gives us himself. That's next week's sermon, by the way. God gives us more than we deserve because what God gives us is he gives us the best, which is himself. He freely gives himself to his people. He really does. He doesn't hold back. It's not petty. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't hold his presence back. He is incredibly generous with his time. He's generally incredibly available with, with who he is. I find him to be so. I find God to be so. When you walk with him, when you reach out to him, he will give you of himself to you. And when you receive him, when you know him, when you fellowship with him, you'll be restored. You're called to live your life that way. To fellowship with him, to be restored by him daily. I pray that you will this week. I honestly pray that you will. Let's pray.